0: When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We continue our journey through the gospel of Mark today, and we come to what is known as the Olivet Discourse. It is known as the Olivet Discourse because Peter and James and John and Andrew are up on the Mount of Olives, hence uh, Olivet. You with me so far? Okay, Um, so they are up there and they are looking back at the Temple in Jerusalem. The view from approximately where they were up on top of that mountain today looks something like this. Today, if you were there on the Mount of Olives looking across the Kidron Valley, you don't see, of course, the temple in Jerusalem. It was prophesied in today's passage, the passage that was just read, that that temple was going to be destroyed. And gone. And that prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled in AD 70 by the Roman general Titus. It has not been rebuilt. But today, if you're in that location, and some of us have been there, have you been to Jerusalem? Raise your hands. How many of you have been there? A few of us have been there. You see this dome of the rock This one of the most sacred sites in Islam is in the temple complex area where the temple in Jerusalem once was. It is supposedly the location where Muhammad, the rock at the center of this mosque, is supposedly the location where Muhammad ascended to heaven some time ago. We have today's passage, this Olivet Discourse, probably the most controversial passage chapter when it comes to interpretation in Mark's gospel. And what we have is the longest discourse, the longest statement of Jesus throughout the entire gospel of Mark in chapter 13. We're going to be in it for a few weeks at least. And what generates this long response is the question of Peter and James and John who ask Jesus privately, They ask him in verse 4, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus has just prophesied the destruction of this great and incredible temple, the centerpiece of worship and this incredible building of massive architecture. It is unthinkable to them that this building would be destroyed except for at the end of time. So Jesus hasn't made a prophecy necessarily about the end of time but about the destruction of the temple, but they make the assumption that he's speaking about the end of time and so he gives a lengthy response in light of what they are thinking. I want to submit this morning that Peter and James and John are in a long tradition of followers of Christ who have an unhealthy curiosity, with dates and with signs and wanting to have inside knowledge about when the end is going to happen and what is going to come. They are the beginning, or they're not even the beginning, but they're part of a long line of tradition of God's people who have an unhealthy occupation with prophetic details. I want to submit to you that we're going to see in chapter 13, Jesus' response is very, very low on prophetic details, on signs, and on when these things are going to be fulfilled. What we're going to see in this controversial chapter, in this Olivet Discourse, is Jesus speaking about how you and I and Peter and James and John and Andrew are to live in light of this time in between his first coming and his second coming. But I want to share with you just one, I could share with you many, many, many interpretations and expectations, not just of Mark 13, but of what all the scriptures, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, Mark 13 as well, as you put all of the prophetic texts of scripture together, there have been a variety of people throughout church history who have explained this in ways that now we see were not correct. We could spend the rest of our time this morning looking at, At examples like this, but I'm going to show you just one of them from an early church father, a guy named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John, who's in today's passage, the disciple, the apostle John. So this is what Irenaeus said uh, about 180 AD in his book against heresies. He said, for in as many days as this world was made, In so many thousand years shall it be concluded. And for this reason, the scripture says, Thus the heaven and the earth were finished, and all their adornment. And God brought to a conclusion upon the sixth day the works that he had made, and God rested upon the seventh day from all his works. This is an account of the things formerly created, as also it is a prophecy of what is to come. For the day of the Lord is as a thousand years, and in six days created things were completed. It is evident, therefore, that they will come to an end in the 6,000th year. So this was not only Irenaeus' understanding of the past and of prophetic future events, but this was more or less the understanding of most Jews going back centuries and most Christians up until this point in the early history of the church. This is referred to as the millennial week. And the common understanding amongst church leaders, amongst those in the pew, was that just as God created in six days and rested on the seventh, the earth is going to exist for 6,000 years, and then there's going to be this 1,000 year of just bliss, this millennial reign, and then the end is going to come. And so he has his charts and dates, like so many do. Again, I'm only going to share you Irenaeus we could have charts and dates of lots of people throughout history that now show to be wrong. So this is the eschatology. It's really more than his eschatology meaning end times. This is more than his eschatology. This is his view of history and eschatology. And so we're with him so far. The world was created ex nihilo. God spoke it into existence. And then we have the first millennium, the second millennium. The third millennium, the fourth millennium, and then Irenaeus and his contemporaries viewed himself, both Jews and Christians, viewed themselves as living in approximately the year 5200 since the creation of the world, the creation of Adam and Eve. And so he was anticipating, as well as his contemporaries, things, to, the, the end times, the crazy things are going to start happening right before the year 6,000. So three and a half years before the year 6,000 is going to be the beginning of persecution and tribulation and trouble. And after three and a half years before approximately the year 6,000, that's when Christ is going to return. And those believers who have died, their bodies are going to be raised, they are going to be reunited with their souls, and they are going to reign for a thousand years until the year 7,000. At which time, those who have died, apart from without faith in God, will be resurrected. There will be a judgment of the wicked. The earth is going to be destroyed, and we usher in the new heavens and the new earth and eternity future. So this is how things, this is how Irenaeus, his contemporaries, and many for centuries before him. So, you'll notice according to this timeline and the dates that he and and his contemporaries were using, about 800 years after uh, he lived is when all of this should have gone down. And it's been about 2,000 years and these things haven't gone down. You don't need any more examples of this, do you? Are you with me, church? So when we come to prophetic texts, And we look at this particular text where the disciples in private are asking Jesus specifically about a sign and when this is going to be fulfilled. His response is very telling about how we are called to prepare for the second coming of Christ. And I want to suggest that it is not about setting dates. It's not about having special knowledge. It's not about apocalyptic fixation on what's going to happen. So we're going to see that he's going to call us to live godly lives throughout all of the stuff that's going to happen between his first coming and his second coming. So let's get into the text now, uh, backing up into chapter 13. We're just going to go through the first 13 verses here today. So let's begin taking a look at verses 1 and 2. So he is leaving the temple in verse 1. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, "'Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings.'" Now, Jesus has been in the temple area since chapter 11 and verse 11. All of the sermons in the last weeks have all been in the temple or in the temple courts area. So here in 13.1, he has finally has left the temple and they have crossed that Kidron Valley. Those of you that have been here, they have gone up to the Mount of Olives. And this disciple is saying, look at this, these massive stones, this, this incredible building. And and it was an architectural wonder, uh, this temple was. This second temple, we're talking about the temple that was built in the first century B.C., Herod the Great's temple. The original temple built by Solomon was destroyed in 586. This temple has more recently been built and expanded, and it was an architectural wonder, and it was the centerpiece of the worship of Yahweh for the Jewish people. The Talmud... The rabbis said this about the the building and about Jerusalem. Uh, He who has not seen Jerusalem in her splendor has never seen a desirable city in his life. He who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never seen a glorious building in his life. This sentiment, this perspective is, is what this unnamed disciple is saying. As they have just walked over from this temple area, all of this stuff that has happened. And what has happened there, we should not... Uh, forget what has happened in this area uh, the, of this magnificent building that, uh, again, was this prophecy was fulfilled in A.D. 70 with it being destroyed. They saw these incredible uh, things, uh, the, these, the, this incredible architecture, and these incredible stones in this, this magnificent building. I don't know if you can recognize the back of my head here, but this is the back of my head down under the Temple Mount area. If you have the opportunity to travel to Jerusalem and you are with a group that can get access down underneath the foundation of the western wall and the temple areas, although the, the stuff above ground was completely destroyed, some of these giant stones are still there. And you can walk under there and you can see the foundation and the stones that they marveled at. The ones they marveled at were above ground, not beneath. Those have been destroyed, but you can walk, and our guide here is pointing out these incredible, incredible stones. One commentator writes this. He says, some of the temple's foundational stones were up to 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. I remember when we were there, I was there a little over a decade ago, him talking about how architects come, and they don't really know to this day how they moved the size of these stones, and how this architecture uh, was put together with the technology that they had in the first century. But all of this grandeur of the temple, we are missing the essence of what Jesus has been trying to communicate in Mark's gospel up to this point. The same commentator goes on, and he writes, seemingly oblivious to Jesus' praise of the humble widow and his acts signifying the temple's judgment, this unnamed disciple remains impressed by the temple's outward greatness. Jesus is cranking the volume down on the greatness of the temple. Number one, it is just a building. Number two, it has ceased to be a place where people are worshiping in spirit and truth. He has just overturned the tables there. He has just demonstrated an act of worship in this widow who is given sacrificially. And this unnamed disciple seems to have missed that. And so what God's word is saying to the reader through Mark's gospel here is that we shouldn't be impressed by religious, worldly grandeur, but by humble worship. This disciple missed, and Mark has set his gospel up so that we see this contrast from last week's text, last week's sermon, and today. It's like he didn't even see what has happened. Jesus has just cast judgment on the leadership of Israel. He has prophesied that the temple was going to be destroyed in a more cryptic way through the parable of the vineyard, that it's going to be destroyed, that the leaders are going to be killed, and now he's about to be specific about the building going. So don't be impressed by religious, worldly grandeur, but by humble worship. Okay, so where am I? Let's see here. I'm just at verse 1, right? Where am I? Um, yeah, the prophecy. The prophecy. Verse 2, is that where I am? I've lost track of where I am. Are you awake, church? Am I in verse 2? He says there, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? So Jesus has prophesied about this temple being destroyed. They have interpreted this prophecy to be about the end of all things because there is no way that this incredible building and structure at the epicenter of the life of the people of Israel is going away except for at the end. And so Jesus responds according to their understanding. And that's what I want us to focus on the rest of our time. We're just going to go through verse 13 today. So they ask, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign? And let's look at Jesus' response uh, beginning uh, beginning in verse 5. So he says to them, this is the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, if you will, verse 5. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. He's telling them to watch out. There's going to be many, many false prophets, many false messiahs. He doesn't begin by telling them a sign or telling them when this is going to happen, but there are going to be many, many false Christs, many false messiahs. He's telling them to hang in there at the beginning. He's telling them to wait Don't jump to the conclusion because you see this false Messiah, this person with all of this following who is, if you will, antichrist with a small a, that the world is about to end. There's going to be many. Watch out. Many are going to come. Now a side point here before we move on to verse 7. The careful reader of Mark's gospel here will see that the the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew especially, will, will notice there has been a growth in their faith in Jesus. Some of you will remember back in chapter 8 when Jesus makes a prophetic statement about what he's going to do. He's going to die. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be raised. Anybody remember what Peter's response was when he said that? He rebuked Jesus. When Jesus said something unbelievable in chapter 8, Peter rebukes him. Jesus is now saying something that is kind of unbelievable. The temple is going to be gone, destroyed, but they believe him. Their faith has increased in him. We want to be like this. We want to be men and women who increase our faith in trusting the words of God and the words of Jesus. Why Why are they trusting him? Part of it is because of what Jesus has been doing. And he has made a variety of prophetic statements that have been fulfilled already right before their eyes going all the way back to chapter 1 when these guys are fishing. And he says, I'm going to make these two fishers of fish into fishers of men. And here we are 2,000 years later. He began with this group of, of laborers and fishermen, the 12. And the church is, is just this massive global entity now. Believers in every, almost in every language, in every nation, in every tribe, in every tongue. We have a few more to reach, but almost all of them have been reached he made a prophecy about these fishers of fish becoming fishers of men, and the disciples are seeing that be fulfilled. He has made a prophecy, you remember in chapter 9, he said some will not die prior to seeing his power. And right after that, Peter and James and John were taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they were seeing, they saw the glory of God and the power of God. So there's this prophecy and fulfillment that they have seen already. Just recently in chapter 11, recent in our journey through the gospel of Mark, Jesus said, you will go into this village and you will find a colt there and it's never been ridden before. And you're just going to ask the people for it and they're going to say, why are you taking this? The Lord needs it. And they're just going to let it go. And they went there and this all happened. So now when he says, see this incredible building? It's going to be gone. They, they They are believing him in faith that that's going to happen. We're seeing the growth of the disciples' faith. And we want to see the same thing in us. Many false messiahs uh, will come, and we ought not to freak out. This is what verse verse 6 is saying. We are going to see leaders come and go, and followings, and, and we have throughout history. And we shouldn't freak out. We don't need to stress out. Many are going to come. This is how Jesus is responding initially to this question by the disciples, when will these things happen and what will the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Moving on, let's move on to verses seven and eight. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. There were wars and rumors of wars in the first century, and there are wars and rumors of wars today. North Korea, every few weeks, it seems like they are sending off a missile, detonating a nuclear bomb. Is this crazy? It's crazy. But God's word would say to us, don't freak out. These things are going to happen. The end is still to come. Many false messiahs, wars, rumors of wars, uh, continuing on in verse Eight. It says, nation will rise against nation. and kingdom against kingdom, there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. These are the beginning. I think if we read this text carefully, we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that it has been 2,000 years since Christ has been and he has still not yet come back. He is saying in his word, these things are the beginning. All of these false messiahs, all of these wars, all of these rumors of wars, these earthquakes and famines are going to come. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. What did I do there? Here we go. Number three, wars, rumors of war, earthquakes, famines will come. Don't freak out. We we, we have them coming. Not only are we seeing in the news week after week uh, wars and rumors of wars, but How about these storms that we are seeing? Um, Earthquake in Mexico. Uh, uh, Harvey, Irma. Uh, uh, There's another one. What's the other one? Yeah, I mean, it is just... So The the Scripture is saying these things are going to happen. The end is still coming. Don't freak out. He's saying it in the first century. It was true then. He's saying... It now. Uh, You know, and jumping aside here just a moment with what's gone on uh, in Houston, one of the reasons I'm so happy to be part of the Evangelical Free Church of America is they're setting up a crisis response in Houston. They've actually already set that up. And so we're in communication some with them, and and Lord willing, we're going to be taking a team to Houston. So stay tuned on that. Uh, The Free Church has done an amazing gospel ministry with churches from all over the U.S. after Katrina, that is still going on umpteen years later, and that is about to begin again in Houston, and hopefully our church is going to be a part of that. We'll have more details for you in the coming weeks. So wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, earthquakes, famines will come. He is saying to us, uh, don't freak out. I want to emphasize one thing in this little section in verses 7 and 8 where he says, the end is still to come. The end is still to come. Now, I don't know to what degree you're like me, but if you're like me, the enemy, um, my flesh, the doubter in me, say, man, it, it has been a long time. It has been a long time since he said he was coming back. And believers have been praying, come quickly. Lord Jesus. It has been a long time. And so when I'm weak, when I am not spiritually strong, sometimes I doubt that, that He's actually going to come back. That this is just all kind of a fairy tale. And so one of the things that we need to do is we need to speak God's Word into each other's lives and so that we can believe that actually this is accurate and He is still coming back. We don't need to freak out and we don't need to doubt that he is not going to come back. He is going to come back. The enemy works on us in a variety of ways. We doubt things that we uh, shouldn't doubt. Uh, We doubt that someone is going to come back for us when they actually are going to come back for us. I'll share with you a story uh, with my my own wife uh, here, doubting me coming back uh, for her. I'm not good with dates, but this one I will remember because it was the first day we were married. We were married on June 27th, 1992, and the next, uh, that day, we drove uh, from Westlake down to Southern California, this is in Southern California, we drove from there right near our apartment, we lived uh, in West LA, we stayed in a hotel right near Westwood, and we had rented a car. Now, we weren't old enough to rent the car. When we got married, he had to be 25. We were 22. So my grandma rented the car for us, the getaway car from our wedding ceremony. And we had to return that car at LAX. And so we grabbed the Jeep, our first day we're married, our only vehicle, got the Jeep, got the grandma rented rent a car Cadillac to return at LAX. And we are on our way to LAX. And I'm right behind her in the Jeep on the Sepulveda exit of the 405. There's three left turn lanes and the green arrow goes, and she drives, and in my Jeep, the stick, like, comes right out. And I'm sitting there holding my stick shift, and all the cars kind of go around me, and they all turn left down Spolver Boulevard. And I'm sitting there with my stick shift. Now, fortunately, there weren't a whole lot of cars at that point, so then, you know, I I go to let the clutch out, and I realize the Jeep is in reverse. So I'm in the left-turn lane, on the 405 exit ramps to Sepulveda, and all I have is reverse. Now, there's no cars around me, so and I've got a Jeep, so I like to drive on sidewalks and curbs and stuff like that. So, so I do a UE, and I'm, now I'm in the left turn lane backwards. So I'm looking at the stoplight, the green arrow. I'm looking at the car behind me that's in front of me, and I make the left turn onto Sepulveda in reverse in my Jeep. And I'm driving down Sepulveda Boulevard in the, with the flashers on, and this was before cell phones, and I'm looking for a phone to call my friend John, who's a mechanic, and say, what do I do? Long story short, I don't know how long it was, an hour or two, or two hours, she's saying, two hours until he, he, I can follow his instructions accurately. I've got all this thing taken apart, and I got this little button pushed in, and, and then I finally get it out of reverse. Now I've got four forward gears, got no reverse, but I got four forward gears, and I finally get Uh, to the car rental place where my wife has been waiting, thinking, he's not coming back. (laughs) He has already left me. Day one of our married life, and he's gone. And I think that is how I and you might sometimes think about the return of Christ. He's not coming back. But the reality is, According to God's word, he is coming back. And we are going to have greater smiles on our faces than my wife had when I showed up there at the rent place when he comes back. It is going to be glorious. Justices are going to be done away with. Righteousness is going to rule. It is going to be beautiful, beautiful. God is looking for us to respond to this, this unhealthy fascination that we have with the end times and details and prophecies. He is looking for us to live godly lives and not freak out and know that the end is still to come, even though all this stuff is happening. He has not yet given us one detail to put on a chart in the answer so far to this question the end is still to come. Let's move, move on. A few more verses. We are at, where am I now? I'm, see, I take a week off and my mind doesn't work uh, that much. Yeah, we're at verse 9. So verse 9, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Verse 9 is all about persecution. We should expect persecution. We should expect wars. We should expect earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes. But be on your guard. You're going to be handed over. On account of me, you're going to stand before governors and, and kings. This happened in the first century, and this is happening in parts of our world today. And as we look on the horizon in America, we don't see a culture that is receptive to the word of God and to the gospel. And I think it is likely that more persecution is coming. This is how he responds to the question, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Persecution is coming. One commentator uh, writes this, or here's the, the point here, the persecution of Christians is to be expected before the end. Don't freak out. This is My summary of of this today is is don't freak out. Here's what the commentator says. Jesus refused to give them, the disciples, eschatological signs. Throughout the Olivet Discourse, he is more concerned to prepare them by exhortation and warning for the trials that lay ahead than to give them dates and signs. Persecution is coming, is what verse 9 is saying. Let's move on to verse 10. The gospel must first be preached To all nations. The gospel must be preached. To all the nations. Again, this is far from those of us who have a tendency to to want to know the micro details of a chart and what's going to happen. The gospel must be preached. Our neighbors need Christ. The nations need Christ. I was blessed last week to hear of a family in our church whose uh, brother was at the end of his rope, he has spent time in prison, he has been involved in drug and alcohol addiction, he has worn out all of his bridges, and he calls a family in our church, and they're praying, trying to discern whether to take him in or not. They decide to take him in. They're praying that he would have a transformation, that he would come to believe in the gospel and the way that he's been living would be changed. Had an opportunity to pray with him this week. He made a profession of faith. Only time will tell whether this profession is a, is a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, but so far things look pretty good. I talked to him about changing his community from a community of darkness, the people he's been hanging with, to a community of light to being a part of a community like this, wherever he's going to be living. I told him about the importance of being baptized, and I had something happen I've never had, never had happen before. So I'm talking with this man's friend, and he tells me, uh, yeah, he went back to the place where he was in Sacramento, and so on, he's gone back there. And his first night back, what, is, what does he do? He said he told me he baptized himself. So I don't recommend self-baptism, but I just took that as a good sign that he is, he is pursuing the Lord, baptized himself at a hotel. So pray for this brother. His, his, his name is Dave. They've asked the question, um, when will these things happen and what will be the sign? And Jesus says the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. From this little church family here in, in Auburn, we've had... People take the gospel to China, to Yemen, to Hawaii, to Jordan. The gospel must go to the nations, to, to, the, to these ethno-linguistic people groups who have yet to hear the gospel and have a church planted in their community. This is what our focus needs to be. This is Jesus' response to the question about when is this going to happen. Let us know the inside track. We want the power and the knowledge about when that temple is going to go down, when the end is going to come. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Verse 10. Last couple verses. We'll continue in this Olivet Discourse next week. Verse 11. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say what is ever given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Rely upon the Holy Spirit to give you words when you are in trouble. This is what they need to hear, not details. Verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will will hate you because of me. Jesus is giving us a heads up that the gospel is going to divide families, that it's going to be hard before I come back. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. He's saying we need to hang in there to not freak out. Back to verse 10, the focus of the believer is not on apocalyptic fervor, but on gospel mission. And then finally, the last thing today, the fruit of the believer is not having the right eschatological chart, but persevering to the end through hardship. We're going to pick it up from here next week, but the thing we want to end with today is this is a call for you and me to stand firm until the end. That is, until you or I die, or until the Lord comes back, whichever comes first, that we would show ourselves to be his children by persevering. Close with this quote from uh, Babnik about persevering, about hanging in there. He says, it is not just a handful of texts that teach the perseverance of the saints. The entire gospel sustains and confirms it. The Father has chosen them before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, ordained them to eternal life, to be conformed to the image of a Son. This election stands, Romans 9, Hebrews 6, and in due time carries with it the calling and justification and glorification. Christ, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen, died for those who were given him by the Father in order that he might give them eternal life and not lose a single one. John 6 and 17, he therefore gives them eternal life and they will never be lost. In all eternity, no one will snatch them out of his hand. The Holy Spirit who regenerates them remains eternally with them and seals them for the day of redemption. Stand firm to the end. This is Jesus' response to the question about when these things are going to be happening and what the sign is. Let's bow our heads and ask God to help us to stand firm. Father in heaven, God, we confess to you, some of us, myself included, have spent excessive time on prophetic and eschatological details to the neglect of these things that we have read in Mark 13, to the neglect of persevering in our faith and overcoming our doubts, to the neglect of taking the gospel to those people around us at school, at work, in our neighborhoods, that we would be delivering the gospel by the way that we live and the words that we speak in the everyday stuff of life. We have neglected that, Lord. Help us. Help us to rely upon the Holy Spirit to give us words to speak when we don't know what to say. Father, we confess we've overreacted with wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and tsunamis and hurricanes. Help us, Lord, to trust you through these things and to advance the gospel because of them. We pray for this specifically in Houston in the days and weeks and months and years to come. Lord, help us not to be impressed by worldly religious grandeur and fancy buildings and mega churches and and just fanciness of, of, of church, but help us, God, to be impressed and blessed by a widow who sacrificially gives. Lord, help us to have hearts that beat after the heart of our Lord and Savior. We pray in his name.